Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, 2 Kings chapter 5. Well, as we continue in 2 Kings chapter 5, it absolutely glows with biblical principles that we also find in the New Testament and especially those associated with the life and works of Yeshua HaMashiach. Now the main figure in this narrative is a Gentile army commander named Naaman. And Naaman works for Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, which is in modern terms is Syria. Now, as a side note, we've encountered the name Ben-Hadad in earlier chapters, and we're going to encounter that name again. It's not the same person each time. Ben-Hadad means something like son of the sun god. It was a title that Aramean kings commonly held, as opposed to a king's formal name. Now, Naaman was a relatively good and decent man who was held in high esteem by the Syrian king and apparently by his household because we're told that a young Hebrew girl who was a house slave in Naaman's household told his wife that she wished Naaman could go have his sarat cured by the prophet in Shomron. She was talking about Elisha who lived in Samaria. Now, sarat is usually translated in English Bibles as leprosy. That is a poor translation. Indeed, Zerat is a skin disease. However, it is not any specific medically defined skin disease. It is certainly not leprosy. But the point that is missed by most Bible commentators and teachers is that the type and the extent of the skin disease isn't the issue. What matters is the cause of it. Zerat is caused by God. It is God inflicting a highly visible, often disfiguring disease upon someone as an outward sign of a sinful or unclean inner spiritual condition that would otherwise be hidden except to the Lord who sees us for who we really are. The Israelites fully understood that. However, what is interesting is that since Jehovah God of, is God of the Hebrews, why would this Gentile army commander, who by definition worships different gods, why would he have it? Now, theoretically, all Gentiles had an unclean and sinful inner spiritual condition since they did not worship the God of Israel, and thus Zerat should only affect Hebrews who were unfaithful to Jehovah. In fact, the various Jewish writers of the Talmud generally conclude that even though the word Zerat is specifically used in the scriptures to, divide, uh, to describe Naaman's skin disease, 
that it had to be something else because Zarat only affects Jews. I disagree with their conclusion. This question is not answered for us specifically. However, perhaps the result of the story gives us, gives us a hint as to why this occurred to Naaman the Gentile. The Lord had prepared his heart to accept him. See, in any case, this skin disease was no, bout, uh, no, uh, no doubt embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. And Naaman was willing to try anything to have it cured. And since he had exhausted every avenue, the prophets and the priests of his gods had suggested anyway, and all the Aramean physicians had prescribed their cures, but to no avail. So upon hearing of another possibility, no matter how remote, he went to his king, who was more than happy to let Naaman go to Israel to seek a cure, and even sent him with an entourage and, and a vast sum of monetary gifts to the very king he'd been battling against, King Yehoram of Israel. And along with the gifts was this letter of introduction and instruction expecting for Yehoram to heal Naaman. So let's pick up our story by rereading part of chapter 5. Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 5. That would be page 405 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start reading at verse 7 and read through verse 14. When the king of Israel finished reading the letter, he tore his clothes. Am I God, able to kill and make alive, he asked, so that he sends me a man to heal of Zarat? You can see that he's only seeking an excuse to quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why did you tear your clothes? Just have him come to me. And he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him who said, Go, bathe in the Yarden, the Jordan, seven times. Your skin will become as it was, and you will be clean. But Naaman became angry, and he left, saying, Here now, I thought for certain that he would come out personally. He would stand and call on the name of Adonai his God and wave his hand over the diseased place and thus heal the person with Zarat. Aren't uh, Amonah and Parpar, the rivers of Damasek, better than all the water in Israel? Why can't I bathe in them and be clean? So he turned and he went off in a rage. But his servants approached him and said, My father, if the prophet had asked you to do something really difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So doesn't it make even more sense to just do what he says when it's only bathe and be clean? So he went down and immersed himself seven times in the Jordan as the man of God had said to do and his skin was restored. And it became like the skin of a child and he became clean. I think that King Jehoram a weak, self-centered, and thoroughly corrupt man 
somewhat misinterpreted the letter he received from the king of Syria. The letter seemed to plainly say that Ben-Hadad fully expected Yeram to personally cure Naaman. Yet if one reasonably assumes that the little Hebrew slave girl's suggestion that the prophet of Samaria, not the king, could cure Naaman, and that that was what Ben-Hadad had acted upon, then all Ben-Hadad meant by his letter was that King Jeram should take the proper steps to see to it that his prophet, Elisha, effect a cure for this valued Aramean military commander. Now, from the Oriental viewpoint, prophets work directly for kings. And the job of a prophet was to convince or even coerce the gods they worship into doing their bidding. So the king tells the prophet what he wants, the prophet goes to the god he represents, and then somehow or another gets that god to act accordingly. But Jehoram smells a rat. Verse 7 tells us that the king of Israel interprets Ben-Hadad's message as a setup for an excuse to go to war. That is, Jehoram complains that he isn't God. How can he possibly cure a disease that God caused? Therefore, he suspects that when Naaman isn't cured, something that Ben-Hadad already knows Jehoram can't do, this will provide Ben-Hadad with a phony excuse to attack Israel supposedly in retribution for being dishonored, especially after he sent such a bountiful gift of respect to King Yeram. And in a shame-honor-based society that represented the entirety of the Middle East, such an excuse for war would be fully understood and accepted by all parties involved. But this was not Ben-Hadad's intent. However, there was also another problem. No doubt King Yehoram knew that only a prophet of God could have any hope of curing Naaman's Zarat and thus stave off war with Aram. But, but the problem is the king of Israel had no relationship with Elisha. He detested Elisha. He'd kill him in a heartbeat. He thought if he maybe get away with it, he would. The feeling was mutual. Elisha had no regard or respect for Jehoram, and no doubt saw him as an adversary that he'd better be aware of. Now somehow, word got to Elisha that the king of Israel was so depressed and anxiety-ridden that he had virtually entered a state of mourning because of this letter from Ben-Hadad. It says the king had torn his garments, which can be taken very literally or merely as an idiom that means he was grief-stricken. And Elisha responded by asking the king why he would behave in such a way. Because what Jehoram displayed was a cowardly despair before any actual problem had arisen. The king was reacting upon a fear of what could happen, not upon any real or imminent danger. And that reality makes me wonder, 
how many good and God-directed works have we as believers turned aside from? Not even attempting them because it was impossible to do, it seemed like, but that was because of our fears. Fears of failure, fears of humiliation, fears of facing something new, fears of the unknown, fear of being personally harmed. Fear is a powerful force in the psyche of a human being. And the Lord knows it. Which is why in the Bible we will often find God's admonition to His people, Fear not. So when Elisha sent a message to King Yeram, Why did you tear your clothes? is a rhetorical question that is actually chastising him for his lack of faith and courage. See, the message from Elisha is basically saying that if you would just accept that Jehovah has a prophet in Israel who can handle this problem and cure this man of his zarat, you wouldn't be so full of grief. The truth is that God always gave his kings of Israel and Judah prophets so that his oracle could guide them in their rulings and in their decisions and thus the people of Israel and Judah could be blessed. Every king had a prophet of Jehovah available. But the kings of the northern kingdom usually didn't want them. Why? Because although they did want prophets, they wanted prophets who represented the other gods. Not Jehovah's prophets. That's because these false prophets were malleable. Oh, they were quite willing to tell the king whatever he wanted to hear. But God's prophets were there to tell the king and the people what God said, whether it sounded good or bad to them or not. And here again we have another blaring God principle erupt. As worshipers of Jehovah and followers of Christ, we have a helper and a deliverer available to us anytime, anywhere, who is far greater than Elisha or even Elijah. And yet, because of our evil inclination, because it remains alive and operating within us, and because of our inherent humanness that sure didn't flee from us when we were saved, much like King Jehoram, more often than not, our instinct is not to consult God, but instead to act on our own when decisions and challenges confront us. Instead of instantly entering into earnest prayer, we often merely descend into fear and anxiety. We act rashly, then we regret it. We assume that the outcome's already determined. No amount of prayer or action is going to have any effect, so why bother? That is what King Yehoram did. And why we find the prophet Elisha writing to the rescue. But Elisha was not coming to rescue Yehoram. He was coming to rescue the situation. 
The entire purpose for healing Naaman would not be for Jehoram's sake, but for God's glory, so that all who witness this will bow down to the power of the God of Israel. Now, we're not told by what means Naaman was instructed to go to Elisha's home instead of seeking out the king of Israel. But when he arrived, it was not with humility, but rather with all the pomp and circumstance that's customary for a man of Naaman's stature. And in a pattern similar to how Elisha had dealt with that aristocratic woman of Shunem, Elisha does not speak directly to his visitor. He speaks through his servant messenger to Naaman. And the message is that Naaman is to go down to the Jordan River and immerse himself seven times. And when he exits the river, he will be cleansed. In Hebrew, Taher. Please notice, he does not say that Naaman will be healed. Indeed, Taher means to become ritually cleansed. It does not mean cured. It does not mean healed. The Jordan waters have no healing effect on his skin. That is, since Naaman's problem is that God sees him as spiritually unclean, and that uncleanness has caused God to give him an outward skin disease as a result, then as a natural result of Naaman becoming spiritually clean on the inside, this skin disease on the outside goes away. Naaman is completely taken aback by this entire scene. Not only is the prophet not even speaking to him directly, but also it seems absurd that to take a bath in a river is the solution to his problem. So he wants to know, why is Israel's river any better than the beautiful rivers up in Syria, the Amana and the Parpar rivers? Besides, he bathes in river water regularly. That's never had any effect before. Now to Naaman's way of thinking, the prophet needed to appear before him and, and, and speak some kind of mysterious incantation that invokes the name of Elisha's God. Wave his hand over the affected area. Do all kinds of neat stuff. Then it would all be healed. At least that's the customary way it was done by the magicians and healers that he'd ever known. So he became furious at having wasted his time only to be insulted and told a bunch of nonsense about bathing in a river. And he left. But his attendants proved to be much more wise and discerning than their master. They approached him in, a, in an affectionate and respectful manner by calling him father. And then they said words to him that ought to resonate with every believer in Yeshua. They asked him a profound question. Had the prophet asked him to do something much more complicated and difficult than merely bathing in the Jordan seven times, wouldn't he have done it? If it meant that he might 
have finally been rid of this horrible skin disease? Had the prophet told him, go climb this dangerous mountain. Fight a couple of lions. Fast for a month. Something that required great personal effort, courage, or or, or accomplishment on Naaman's part. Wouldn't he have undertaken such a challenge with zest? Naaman was a brave man of action, of discipline, doing something to earn his healing. That he would have undertaken no matter how difficult. He reconsidered. He did as Elisha told him to do. And miraculously, he was cleansed of his zarat. His flesh became virtually new again, just like like the skin of a young boy. The scars of battle and age, the, the leathery wrinkles from frying out in that hot sun, the hideous outward disfiguration from his Unclean, uh, unclean inner spiritual condition were all reversed as if he'd been reborn. But he had to pass through the living waters of Israel for that to happen. Now I hope the intended image is starting to grow in your minds. Here is a vivid picture of the gospel in the Old Testament, as vivid a one as we might ever find. God, through his prophet Elisha, told Naaman what he had to do to be cleansed of his unclean spiritual condition. But it was so easy and simple that it became Naaman's stumbling block. God offered this to Naaman with no merit, no work needed on Naaman's part other than to have enough faith to trust in it. But Naaman's natural instinct was that he had to earn this deliverance from his uncleanness. Or that some powerful religious holy man had to perform special and costly rituals over him so that he could be released from his condition. Or that he could see no reason that deliverance couldn't happen by being immersed in the living water from some other source than Israel, some Gentile source. Now to make it as plain as possible to those who might not be making the connection, the way to our souls being made clean and acceptable to God is merely by being washed in the living waters of Israel. Yeshua. But that is a stumbling block for so many who cannot accept that faith and faith alone in Messiah is the answer. Surely our behavior, our punctilious following of rules, our good deeds, our giving to charity, our hard work, All of this, more, must be needed for so grand and complete a deliverance as this. 
But in fact, all of those things do nothing but demean the free gift of salvation that God offers us through Christ. When we in faith accept God's way to deliverance, we are divinely cleansed from the inside out. But it has to be faith in God's Messiah, not in some other choice. It must be in the living waters of our Israelite Savior that we are immersed under the Israelite covenants. And when we submit to this, we exit those living waters as though we were newborns exiting the water of our mother's womb. We are reborn. We are as new again. We don't need a prophet to do it for us, but merely to show us the way. No holy man has to be present. No ritual needs to be performed. It's personal. It's private between each individual and the Lord. And yet, the requirement is the same for everybody. Rich or poor, slave or free, complete surrender to the God of Israel without condition. It is interesting that in verse 13, Naaman's servant suggests that it's such a small thing to be told to bathe and be clean. Why not do it? Bathe and be clean is the principle of the mikvah. Hebrew water immersion. No ritual is performed in the process. No one performs it upon you. You self-immerse. You go into the water alone and unclean. You come up alone and cleansed. The water of the mikvah has no magical effect. Rather, all results are due to your trust and obedience to God's commandments. It's entirely an act of faith. Oh, there's witnesses. But they're not part of the immersion process. In fact, despite the many paintings and the mental image we have of Jesus being baptized by John, I have no doubt that's not how it happened. John was there as a witness. That's what he said he came to be. He didn't dunk Yeshua. All Hebrew immersion was self-immersion. And Jesus and John didn't give us a whole new Christian ritual method of baptizing. And by the way, to baptize is but the English translation, translation of the Greek word baptismo, which is just a generic word that means to immerse. It carries no meaning whatsoever of ritual or of method. The modern way the evangelical church has of assisting people in baptism by one or two people pronouncing words over the person as they literally dunk them under the water is totally unlike what happened with Christ in the Jordan. And while it's not wrong, certainly far from the biblical procedure and pattern, let's read some more chapter 5. Let's go back to verse 15 and we're going to read that to the end.
page 406 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Then with his whole retinue, he returned to the man of God and he went and stood before him and said, Well, I've learned there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a present from your servant. But Elisha answered, As Adonai lives before whom I stand, I will not accept it. And despite his urging him to take it, he refused. So Naaman said, If you won't take it, then please let your servant be given as much earth as two mules can, t- can carry, because from now on your servant will offer neither burnt offerings nor sacrifices to other gods, but only to Adonai. Accept this, and may Adonai forgive your servant for it. When my master goes into the temple of Ramon, to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon. When I bow down, bow down, may Adonai forgive your servant for this. And Elisha said to him, Go in peace. Now Naaman had gone only a short distance from him when Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, Here, my master has made it easy on this Arami, the Syrian. Naaman, by not accepting from him what he brought. And as Adonai lives, I'll run after him, at least get something from him. So Gehazi hurried off after Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and asked, Is everything all right? Yes, he replied, My master sent me with this message. Two young men have just now come to me, guild prophets from the hills of Ephraim. Would you be kind enough to give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes? Oh, by all means, take two talents, said Naaman, pressing him. He tied up the two talents of silver and two bags and gave them with two changes of clothes to two of his servants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. On reaching the hill, he took the bags from them and put them away in the house. And then he let the men go and they left. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant hasn't gone anywhere, he said. Elisha said to him, Wasn't my heart there with you when the man left his chariot to meet you? Is this a time to receive silver and clothing and olive groves and vineyard and sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's Zarat will cling to you and to your descendants forever. He left Elisha's presence with Zarat as white as snow. So now we get the surprising expression of faith from Naaman as he says, Well, I've learned there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Boy. Here is a Gentile man a loyal and dedicated soldier of the highest rank who can only respond to what has happened to him by admitting there is no God in all the earth except Yehovah. His inner spirit has been totally transformed. And he knows that this God dwells among Israel. Again, the significance of this His statement is just like having Yeshua speak to us. First, this is an absolute statement of monotheism. In a world of hundreds and hundreds of gods, Naaman realizes that they don't exist. 
And second, there is only one God, and that is the God of Israel. Even more, he asks for permission to literally transport some of the soil from Israel back to Syria so that he can build an, build an altar upon it and so he can sacrifice to Yehovah. It, it, it is very hard to find sufficient words to say how much I wish the Gentile church could adopt this attitude that I believe is not so much a choice as a duty. Far from building a wall of separation between his own Gentileness and the Hebrew people, he attached himself as a Gentile to even the land of Israel. Of course, it's in a spiritual way by means of how and to whom he pays homage. But he fully understands that this God is Israel's God and he calls Israel his earthly dwelling place. So does Naaman now renounce his nation, renounce his Gentileness, and become a Hebrew? No. At least not physically. But he does spiritually. He pronounces that he will no longer burn incense to other gods. That is, he's not going to worship the gods of his own nation. But in verse 18, he asks Elisha for forgiveness. Because part of his duties as Aram's military commander is to go to religious services with the king of Aram at the temple of Ramon and then bow down at the temple. Ramon is the god of thunder and lightning and flood in Aram. It's not something he wants to do, but he feels he has no choice in the matter. Elisha responds to him by simply saying, Shalom. This is not permission. It's not tolerance. It's simply leaving the matter open-ended. Now frankly, I see it as wisdom. Because when one first comes to faith, you can't climb that mountain to maturity in one day. We find in the book of Acts that Jesus' brother James the Just takes the same approach during Paul's visit to him as, he concerns, as it concerns what to do about all these Gentiles who have recently turned to Israel's God and Israel's Messiah, but from a practical matter, they still live in a heathen Gentile society. In Acts 21-25, he says, However, in regard to the Goyim, the Gentiles, who have come to trust in Yeshua, we all have joined in writing them a letter with our decision they should abstain from what uh, had been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from fornication. In no way were these Gentiles of faith being relieved from being obedient to God's commandments. But just as with young children who first come to faith, you take baby steps to bring them along, realizing that their understanding and thus their practices are necessarily primitive, they're limited. Now backing up a couple of verses, we find that Naaman offered to pay Elisha for what he did in his deliverance. But Elisha makes it clear he can't accept such a payment. 
He did not sanctify Naaman in order to earn money, but rather only to glorify God. To have anything accepted for this would be to fraudulently accept a gratuity and to accept credit for something the Lord did. Here, beginning in verse 20, we find an irony. We have just read about this simple faithfulness of a Gentile towards God. A Gentile who had essentially adopted the spirit and soul of a Hebrew. But now we have a Hebrew, the great prophet Elisha's own personal assistant, Gehazi, who has obviously adopted the spirit and soul of a Gentile heathen. Rekazi can't stand it that this Gentile would come to Israel, accept Israel's God, offer a fortune to Elisha, and then Elisha refuses it. No doubt on the one hand, Gehazi could imagine all the good it could do for the prophet guild communities that lived in near poverty. But on the other hand, he saw an opportunity for personal gain. So as Naaman is homeward bound, Gehazi chases after him and Naaman recognizes him and he wonders if something's happened. And Gehazi proceeds to fabricate a story about some prophets who came to him for clothing and money. So he asks for two changes of clothing and what today would amount to 66 pounds of silver. The grateful Naaman offered Gehazi essentially double what he asked for. And what echoes this narrative brings us of instructions by our Messiah in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 40 through 42, it says this, If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for one mile, carry it for two. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something from him, from you, lend it to him. See, but the street-wise Naaman decides he's going to send two of his men to accompany Gehazi back to Samaria. Now, no doubt this had a dual intention. First was that Gehazi was going to be transporting over 130 pounds of silver with him, a small fortune, and he'd be subjected to bandits. Second, the rabbis say, Naaman was suspicious. And he didn't necessarily trust Gehazi. After all, Elisha had just made it abundantly clear he wouldn't accept anything from Naaman. In fact, the wording of that passage makes it clear that this esteemed man of God, who had just proven himself to be exactly that, had made a vow in Jehovah's name not to accept anything. And now suddenly, here comes this servant of Elisha's all by himself, claiming that this same Elisha had sent him to get some money from Naaman. A little lesson here. Just because someone says they represent God, or actually is even a believer, or even has a vocation 
that is in service to God doesn't automatically make them trustworthy or even incapable of doing something sinful or harmful to another person. It's not good stewardship to be naive and just blindly give your money to a church or a synagogue authority or even a Christian acquaintance merely because of their position or their story. Especially if you you feel a check in your spirit. You need to be wise and do a little bit of investigating. But when Gehazi returned, he was confronted by Elisha. And of course, Gehazi continues his deception. Elisha asks him where he's been. Gehazi answers, I haven't been anywhere. Elisha knew everything. But he wanted to give Gehazi an opportunity to come clean and to repent. But the lure of so much money to be gained so easily, this was an opportunity that might never occur again in his lifetime. It was just too tempting. And so this foolish servant just kept lying. You know, it's amazing how when we determine to deceive others, we can so easily deceive ourselves. Did Gehazi not understand who he was dealing with? On earth and in heaven? His master was one of the two greatest prophets ever to live. Gehazi had personally witnessed many of Elisha's miracles. Elisha had been given the gift to see things. To have visions whenever God decided to give it to him. And of this, his servant was acutely aware. And even if Elisha hadn't seen, the Lord had. Did Gehazi think he would escape the watchful gaze of God Almighty? You know, it's amazing what some temptations will do to humans. How many pastors have sadly succumbed to theft, to pornography? Perhaps their congregations and their families had been fooled. Did they think Christ didn't know? How many laypersons who show up at their church or synagogue without fail go home to cheat on their spouses or they're unfair in their business practices? They seem to think that because their pastor or their rabbi or their fellow church members aren't aware of it, that their sin will go unnoticed by the Lord. Or perhaps maybe they're they'll just receive a kindly wink and nod from Him. It's utterly irrational that Gehazi would think he was going to get away with such a heinous crime. But Elisha makes it clear he knows all about it. Gehazi's punishment is directly proportional to his sin and, interestingly, to the context of its occasion. Following the Torah principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, he will now wear the outer mark of his inner spiritual condition that Naaman has just been relieved of.
Gehazi will be given Sarat. And as often happens when one commits such a serious crime against God, it has long-lasting, unintended consequences on those we love, those we care the most about. So not just Gehazi, but his descendants will bear this uncleanness indefinitely. Next week, we'll explore 2 Kings chapter 6.